0: Hello there, welcome to Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing and climate change. I'm Sarah, your podcast editor, and I'm bringing you episode eight of season one. Welcome to part two of our finale for season one with Dean Rad, a social impact investment associate at the New South Wales Treasury in Australia. In this episode, Mai and Vis continue their conversation with Dean, where he explains his role at the New South Wales Treasury, including the thought process behind social impact investing and how working in the public sector compares to his experience in the private sector. If you haven't listened to part one with Dean, I recommend checking it out in the previous episode, episode 8. You're welcome to listen to it before or after this episode, whatever suits you best. They're both very, very insightful. Before we continue with the episode, the GreenFluence team and I would like to give a huge thanks to our guests who have come on to share their experiences and knowledge with us in season one. We've truly learned a lot from you all and we're very, very grateful for it. Thank you as well to our listeners on the other side of this podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If we've piqued your interest and you'd like to share your thoughts or hear what other GreenFluencers are thinking, please feel welcome to connect with us on Facebook and LinkedIn. We'd love for you to be part of our GreenFluence community. Now, here is part two of Steve Rad.
1: Would you be able to tell us, well, firstly, what is your role and explain a bit about how this fits into the bigger picture of making a social impact?
2: For me, I've been fortunate this year, I joined New South Wales Treasury and specifically within the Office of Social Impact Investment. So, yeah, this was a really uh, unique role, which I, I didn't know existed until I saw the ad and the opportunity to apply for it. So what the Office of Social Impact Investment does uh, New South Wales Treasury is three things, and I'll focus on two of those things. So the first thing which I'll... Like I'll mention is that we aim to promote social enterprise uh, and develop, you know, the social enterprise ecosystem within New South Wales. The two other things are is that we engage in impact investments and how impact investments are defined can, can be quite broad. And you know, some people may impact wash themselves um, and say so they're impact investors whilst they're not. However, what we do is specifically we engage in impact investments across two spaces. So we have uh, social impact investments, um, and these are for us are typically like outcomes-based contracts or payment by results contracts. And um, to st- take a step back, what they aim to do is they take private capital—not in all cases, but in a lot of cases—aim to take the private capital to solve public solutions. So. When And this is talking very, I'll talk more broadly across the industry itself um, as opposed to us directly at, at New South Wales Treasury, but a primary reason for the social impacts themselves, impact investments themselves is that it allows for the opportunity for whether it's the public sector or the not, uh, for the, the for-purpose sector to engage in innovative models to test solutions to you know problems that have always existed so it might be like children who live in out-of-home care and are only able to be reunified with their families it might be looking to how can we better you know engaging in that space in terms of youth employment and uh, promoting um, employment outcomes in terms of Aboriginal populations as well Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations and, and beyond so there's a really broad range of programs there. And again, that's looking at the sort of social outcomes, the people outcomes. We're talking about people in fact This is the people part of, you know, the Office of Social Impact Investments portfolio. But then we also have our New South Wales Sustainability Bonds program. And what that is, we work alongside T Corp who issue the bonds. And we do two things primarily at the Office of Social Impact Investments. So we look at What are some projects that we have in the pipeline as New South Wales government that promotes sustainability outcomes? So, do they have green outcomes or do they have social outcomes? So, some examples of this could be we've got you know the Sydney Metro. So we have an asset identification um, program where we look at okay, like what you know projects are in the New South Wales pipeline are. that promote sustainability so is it low carbon transport like light rail or you know metro is it um you know sustainable wastewater management programs is it you know programs that have maybe a social lens so this is the sustainability part of the social um like the social part of the sustainability bonds like to help improve disability like disabled access to train stations for example um, can we you know roll out LED lighting across schools, for example, um, and so on, like the asset pool, you know, can grow and grow in that space. And, and we'll continue to do so as well. And against once we've sort of identified these assets, we can then actually and TCOP on our behalf can issue bonds with that as the asset pool. So once they issue those bonds, um once they issue those bonds like there's a few benefits to it. Like investors have the opportunity to engage in a traditional vanilla type government bond, which yields quite a low yield at the moment, given the sort of fixed income interest rate environment. Or alternatively, they can invest in a green bond or a social bond or a sustainability bond like we offer in New South Wales. And we have three of them that total $5.2 billion in terms of issuance. And alongside that, like there's the opportunity for investors to say, okay, like by allocating capital to this, we're achieving impact, which is reported for you know, some of those assets that I just mentioned, like the Metro, which you caught this morning. This. And a great thing about doing that, and this is a broad benefit that across, that applies to you know the sustainability bond space globally, is that you sort of achieve three great outcomes um, as an issuer. So, you attract new investors to those fixed income investments. So, um, people who may not traditionally be interested in investing in government bonds, um, given their conservative nature as an asset, um, they may be interested because of the you know the ESG benefits of that investment. And, and you know your greenfluence team touched on so much about ESG investment and, and the allocation of capital being driven towards that right now, and you know record rates. Um, so there's the one benefit, and by attracting new investors, you achieve a greater book coverage. So there's a greater subscription of those bonds, um, which is always important because uh, if you don't, if you go to issuance and you don't achieve, you know, full subscription, it's a bit of a failure for any issuer. But the fact that you have many multiples um, subscribing is always a a great indicator of success and. It's a testament to your uh, your credibility um, as an issuer, a debt issuer. Um, and the benefit of, again, having higher coverage and more investors um, being attracted to those issuances is that it helps drive down the cost of debt because there's increased competition for the same issuance. So then you attract like a premium or industry calls it a agranium. So you actually can issue cost of debt and you can acquire yeah capital for lower rates, um, which is a big financial incentive for governments and debt issuers to engage in things like sustainability bonds or sustainability linked loans and bonds, which um is an even newer growing space. so yeah, that's those are what we do across the um across the team at the office of social impact investment and yeah, very fortunate to. Be engaged um, quite intimately with the social impact bond space and be actively involved in them, like the managing and monitoring control of those investments, but then also be involved in um, the sustainability bond side where we engage in, like I said, the asset identification, but also, you know, once those bonds have been issued, we engage in the reporting of those. um, you know, the impacts of those bonds too. So that's the second part of that program. So the asset identification and then the reporting of those bonds in terms of impact and performance.
1: From a personal perspective, what excites you most about being in this role? Like what kind of drives that passion of, you know, being here, you enjoy it more than your other role?
2: Yeah, it, it's an interesting one. I'll, I'll have to be very honest. Like, I loved the intellectual exercise of performing an evalu- evaluation back in um, at PwC, and I think the reason why is because it's purely philosophical. Like, what something's worth to one person is worth something completely mm. else to someone else. So, uh, the best example of this again going to like renewable technology and you know, battery storage and things like that is Tesla. So Tesla is the most valuable car company in the world. However, the amount of cars that they make and produce, and they're worth more than multiple, like traditional car companies put together. So Toyota, Ford, and so on. However, they manufacture like only a fraction of what those car manufacturers manufacture. So it's sort of the value question you ask yourself is like, how can this company like Tesla be worth so much more than other companies who combined make many times more cars than Tesla themselves. And the the debate would be if you're if you ignore the long term and you just think okay, like based on my inputs and outputs, like like Toyota and Ford have to be worth more. But then it's it's more than that. It's like okay, like how do we value you know. The long time move towards electric vehicles and the fact that Tesla has first mover advantage on that. How Tesla has got AI infrastructure built into those cars, and the more those cars drive on the road, the more intelligent they become, and the better they become, and and so on. And you know the fact that they're engaged in battery storage as well, and that's uh, going to be so important in terms of we've got increased renewable electricity generation. Where does that power get stored to ensure there's a baseload supply and that there's Reliability with the energy grid, not just you know sustainability of the energy grid, along with the affordability considerations as well. So yeah, like that was a bit of a a, like a digression from um, the current role, but that's one thing I, I loved about that. And I think the great thing about this role is sort of being able to take that finance toolkit that you learn, whether it's in university or in those like doing what I've just described. And applying it to social environmental and sustainable outcomes it's yeah it's the opportunity to do something that's so broad and general so for example what i just described is a very technical like single disciplined thing whilst whilst i work at the office of social impact investment my role is so broad and general and diverse and it allows me to like leverage on knowledge and skill sets from so many different areas. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So if I'm working on a social impact bond, you know, if I'm working on a, on one of our social impact investments, hypothetically, and we're looking at the performance of this social impact investment, To understand the performance of something that involves a social outcome, I may need to have a social work understanding to understand, you know, how does this program actually impact the people that we serve? So there's almost like a grassroots volunteering social impact, social work side to what we do. And sort of once I understand, you know, what is the, like, social impact of what we're doing or if there's issues in terms of how, you know, a program's being delivered to impact the people that we're attempting to serve, like what can we, like how how can we ensure that we measure that effectively? So I've got to have like an understanding of statistics. And once we sort of are able to take what we are seeing, like an understanding qualitatively from the feedback and measure that quantitatively, and and we identify, say there is an issue with a social impact investment, like what's the course forward? Because we don't want this... You know innovative program or policy to fail especially when there's you know capital at risk or you know there's there's outcomes that we want to achieve you know socially so what we then aim to do is maybe we'll engage in a restructure but by engaging in a restructure we need to sort of engage with stakeholders so there's a lot of people management and stakeholder management there you know and use of negotiation skills and so on and once that's achieved and hopefully that's achieved, well. Yeah, I guess we agree on a restructure. I, myself, I'll then have to, you know, help draft and review deeds of variation. And I'm not a lawyer or a law student. That's probably something you're more familiar with, my, but you know, I have to sort of, you know, engage in what some what would be something a lawyer would typically do. Um, and as a part of this restructure as well, would have to consider, okay, if we're changing the risk-reward for reward dynamic like what are the sort of payoff matrix like matrices that uh, are being applied so i'd sort of have to use my finance brain and you know take that whole concept of risk and reward and model that out to work out okay if we're going to restructure and we're going to change the risk profile what's the appropriate return profile to match that and then yeah once that occurs it's sort of like communicating to you know our sort of superiors within treasury, within government. so engaging in the political side is like, okay, this is like the impact of this restructure and and this is like how it's going to better enable state outcomes and improve the fiscal performance of the state and and so on. and yeah, it's just I couldn't think of a more broad, generalist diverse role than what I do. Like everything you know and learn can be used. Um, And, yeah, I think for for maybe someone like myself, someone who is passionate, like someone who's, yeah, fascinated by finance but passionate about people and has a lot of different diverse interests and is also like really committed to my community, like this is a great space to be in and maybe... As much as I say love the intellectual exercise of valuations, back in my previous role at PwC, uh, I didn't have the opportunity to like broadly engage like I get to do now. So yeah, that's probably the thing that I would say I love most about this role is like the ability to be a broad generalist and take everything that I know about, you know, my grassroots involvement in the community in terms of you know trying to achieve social outcomes there through the my finance background through to my passion okay. for politics and, yeah, bring it all into one, what role where yeah, every road meets and intersects.
1: And you're definitely not a person that can just sit still, <laughs> you touched on sustainable bonds and also social impact bonds. Um, but, you know, for example, greenwashing and also, you know, false claims is quite an issue now in the ESP industry and lots the firms, as you see, are suddenly wanting to move because it's a trend and they're jumping into it blindly without having proper processes or reporting in place. So what we're kind of concerned with is, you know, how can they validate um, and ensure that their environmental and social credentials are robust? Um, so what have you kind of observed that companies can do to avoid you know, clean washing?
2: Is the most important thing to do is accurately define what it is that you do. Um, so in terms of responsible investment, it's as easy as ABC in a way. So the way to think about responsible investment is it should, you know, avoid harm, benefit stakeholders and contribute to solutions. And it may do all those things or it may do some of those things. And the more it does of all those things, probably the more um, superior I would say that invest, responsible investment approach is. So if you're applying a negative screen on stock selection, that's only avoiding harm. That's not doing much more. Whilst if you go to the other side of the spectrum, which I would say we at Aussie, well, this Office of Social Impact Investment lie on, we actively engage in social impact investment. We'll, you know, not only are we trying to avoid harm, but we're looking to benefit our stakeholders, the participants in our programs that we help you know, to structure finance for. They're the beneficiaries. We're looking to improve their life and their social outcomes or environmental outcomes. And we contribute to those solutions by you know, testing innovative models to help solve problems that have always existed in the policy environment and have remained unsolved up until this point point. Um, and in terms of contributing to, to solutions we look to allocate capital in our sustainability bonds program you know two projects which help reduce greenhouse gas emissions or help increase accessibility for people who are disabled and, and so on so the first thing has got to be defining what it is that you do because what could be annoying and maybe what's annoying for us in what we do is we we all get lumped into like ESG investment space and just from that example you sort of saw the difference right but for us in an impact investment like impact investment really refers to you know, investments made with the explicit intention to generate positive social and or environmental impact alongside a financial return and then measure this impact as well and And ideally, the the key difference between impact investment and those other types of approaches is that ideally, an impact investment will also provide additionality. So that means like the delivery of benefits that beyond what would have occurred in the absence of the investment itself. So, you know, you might have an ESG investor or a fund manager who might say, oh, we're, you know, we're ethical investors because we engage in. You know, negative screening and all that really does is, you know, avoid harm. So in a way, it's a positive impact because they're avoiding harm. But that's all that they're doing. Like the, whilst impact investing seeks to contribute additional positive impact, so the first the first thing's got to be, like, properly defining what you do. And I think even now there there's there's people that I've spoken to, you know, informally where. They've worked for fund managers who are looking to enter this space now and they're branding themselves as impact investment whilst, you know, they're actually just applying like sustainability themed investing approaches, for example. So yeah, it's 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 a controversial one, but I think that's the first step, defining, you know, what is your investment approach and marketing as as such. And like I think it's important for us to call out where that's not the case. Uh, and yeah, being clear about those definitions. So like the Responsible Investment Association and Wolfiral Agile, I think, does a decent job in highlighting those different approaches. And yeah, that was the reference I made to your previous guest, Tom Bunting, who's who worked with them. Um, in terms of you know going forward from there is then maybe looking at, you know, what are the measurement outcomes that you then do apply to ethical investing. So you know, for our social impact investments and bonds uh, and payment by results contracts, looking at what is the best quantitative metric that can highlight the impact that we have. And and by choosing the right measurement, that helps then, you know, in terms of reporting perspective so we can actually demonstrate this is the impact from the investment itself. Whilst then maybe like looking at the sustainability bonds front, um, you know, there is global organisations that exist uh, like the International Capital Markets Association, which has sustainability bond guidelines and green bond principles and so on, um, which help, you know, encourage issuers to issue a framework based on 4 key components. So, like, it's identifying what the use of your proceeds are, what's the process for, you know, project evaluation and selection. So how does it meet, you know, certain environmental goals? Are these, like, not that it's a criteria, but are these aligned also to SDGs and things like that? How are these proceeds then managed? That's the third thing. And then fourthly, like reporting, like how do we report on that impact? So putting frameworks together which enable reporting and process around that help improve the integrity in that case of the sustainability bond issuance. And then, again, you can engage third parties. So you can obtain external reviews on those frameworks or you know, continuing opinions and third, oh, you know, second party opinions on, or, you know, third party assurance on um, the ongoing reporting as well. So these are probably some measures that we take actively to
3: reduce impact washing, greenwashing and everything in between. Yeah, that's a very good point. Now taking a more broader, apo- a broader approach. Um, so as I alluded to before, there's been a growing trend of young people wanting to, have more purposeful careers and wanting to align with employers who align with their values, and that's something that you know Maya and I really want to focus on as well with Greenfluence and bringing people into this sort of field. So, why do you firstly? Why do you think that's the case, and what trends are you seeing in the demographics within the social impact sector? <laughs>
2: I wouldn't be able to say I have a clear point of attribution, so if you were to ask me to provide something with a high degree of confidence, uh, I don't know if I could come up with a significant, like something of statistical significance uh, in terms of um, testing a hypothesis um, to leverage probably some of the stats work that you guys do at the uni. Um, however, like I'd be interested because I think one thing that's maybe accelerated it in a way is social media. And I think as well, like, like a lot of people get behind causes, you know, like Twitter was the first thing that really helped to drive social change and, you know, the whole Arab Spring, for example, it's been cited that Twitter was the driver for that and sort of now when you see, um, like maybe over the last two years, some of the social causes that really seem to get great media attention, unfortunately, like maybe driven by tragic events is, you know, things like Black Lives Matter um, in light of you know the George Floyd incident. So you've got people like really thinking about like how can ha- how can we be more, you know, cognizant of racial inequities that might exist? How can you know policies around policing be adjusted to reflect this? And then, you know, we've obviously had the COVID <laughs> um outbreaks and subsequent lockdowns um, and that pandemic to deal with and you know, people sort of, you know, taking the social media to promote vaccination and, and so on. That's that's a an example of that. And like people use social media as a as a driver to promote their values. Now I think within the another thing with the social media is that you may have seen the social dilemma on Netflix. Social media does have the tendency to Put people in thought bubbles in Mm -hmm. a way and i think young people on average are more progressive um and that's probably reflected in terms of how we vote as well um whilst you, you know typical older voters may vote more conservative on average and as a result because we're sort of in this sort of progressive thought bubble in a way via social media i think maybe there's like a like social media causes crowd behavior, and because there's a crowd behavior that exists around you know progressive values and ideas and causes, we as a result are more pursuing of that. This is like one like this would be my that would be one of my sort of yeah, sociological hypotheses, which I have absolutely no <laughs> uh, no expertise in confirming or clarifying, but that's one like hypothesis. But again, to the second part of your question in terms of the trends that we're seeing, I think around the social impact sector, I think maybe one criticism in the past was that people who may have worked, again, this is broad generalisation stereotype and it's not reflective of what I've seen, but one common stereotype that I heard, for example, was like, oh, some of the people that say work in the not-for-profit sector or the for-purpose sector because there's less remuneration involved, That you typically attract a lower quality of employee for example again hypothetical or if you don't attract those people you attract people who are genuinely passionate about the cause and that's purpose and what I'm seeing right now is that some of the smartest most intelligent people that I've come across work in this space and those are the people who are continuing to be attracted to this space they're people who have come from university backgrounds like yourself and are moving straight in, or they're people who've got, you know, a decade, you know, many years of senior experience in a certain space and they're taking that skill set and knowledge and doing something that's much more values aligned. And I think that's something I'm much more, yeah, confident about in my convictions is that in the social impact sector space, there is much, there's not only a greater demand from young people coming in, but as a result of that demand, you're really seeing strong, incredible talent come into this space to you know, not only for themselves to achieve, you know, financial returns in terms of a salary and such, but you know, to drive social returns
3: through what they do your idea of, of social media being a key influence for young people is, is I guess definitely correct because I think we're seeing that a lot of young people are choosing their career based on causes and normally they choose it based on what they're good at like say I want to I'm good at math and physics I'll do engineering but now it's like I'm I feel strongly about this course let me use my skill set for it and I think that's something that you've done as well a more broader question and I think a lot of our listeners and myself very interest, are very interested in is what the transition has been like from the private sector where I think a lot of people feel very, is very like fast-paced to I guess the public sector where I guess you're serving the community more directly in a way I could be wrong here. So in which sector do you think young people can make a more tangible impact?
2: A rule of thumb that I give myself as advice and I think it's probably appropriate for most is the best advice doesn't I think I think the best advice doesn't come from when people have gone down a certain route and say, Oh, what I've done, that's best for you as well. I think the best advice comes from when people haven't done something and really regret it and say, Oh, I this, I wish I did this. This is what I would have done differently. So I might go the other way to both of those and say I think what's awesome about being young and creative is that an enthusiastic is you can take that and be enterprising. And I think I'd encourage more and more young people to do that. There is obviously like the the traditional pathways that exist and both are great. But if you if you've got a unique idea, you've got the youthfulness and the enthusiasm to to really strive with it i'd encourage that and it again you, you may succeed you may fail um, it's not something that i've done either but it's maybe something that i i wish i did do more so because maybe there's the opportunity to back a new technology you know, that delivers superior far superior impact than being you know a, a small part of a, a big cause for example or yeah and that helps take society to the next frontier that would be my my recommendation out of what I haven't done. Um, but what I have done going from private to public sector, um, so this is where I have a biased opinion. So I, I tried the other um, recommendation. I have, I have no inherent bias in a way. I think what I like about the pathway that I took, so this is a biased response, is that places like PwC Australia in particular are a fantastic institutions to learn like i said the opportunity to work across a diverse range of clients across a diverse range of industries across a diverse range of outputs in terms of deliverables that we're looking to provide those things give you a far superior in my biased opinion skill set than, like you know doing one process type role and that that's it because i think when you're Then, say, go into a sector where you want to have tangible impact. Impact sort of needs to be considered in a whole society context, right? Because maybe one positive impact that you're having may have a negative impact in another way. And, you know, these lockdowns have been a great example of that. We've had a positive impact of reducing COVID-related deaths, but we've had a negative impact on individuals' mental health. And that's, you know, a bad health outcome or oh, you can look at economic outcomes we have caused economic damage. That's a, another bad outcome. So I think having broad, diverse experiences really help to enable, equip and empower you as an individual to have the broadest impact because you've sort of taken a whole of society approach and lens to how you aim to solve problems. And I think that's, something that I perceive valuable in my own experiences. Again, you'd have to interview someone who's gone backwards the other way from public to private to launch a counter argument. But um, that's been my experience in my own biased opinion.
3: Yeah, no, I think that's so true, right? I think regardless of what sector you work in, if you have that problem solving mindset and if you have the idea that you want to make an impact, I definitely think you'll thrive that is is common for whatever sector you're in so um yeah i think that's very good advice dean um awesome so now we're at the time we're having our speed round questions so they'll be nice and quick
0: yeah are you ready (laughs)
3: dean okay let's go so firstly what are your book recommendations and what are people to follow in the space
2: I'll, i'll i'll go backwards So people following this space, a bit of a pitch for you guys, anyone who's been on this podcast, I guess they're the most aligned to the people who are interested in listening. So I know you've had a few great guests already and you've got many exciting ones in the pipeline too, which I'm sure you'll reveal and I won't be the ones to the one too. But yeah, anyone who appears on this podcast is a great start given um, the passion and interest for this space. And then maybe more personally because this is a person who one of the people who primarily inspired me to go down this route is uh, Professor Muhammad Yunus. So again, the the founder of the Grameen um, Bank, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winner. Uh, he's also uh, written, uh, wrote a couple of books um, in this space too. So Bankers to the Poor is his first one. And that really highlights the you know, power and potential of microfinance and then uh, his most recent publication, I believe, is A World of Three-Zero, so A World of Zero Poverty, Zero Unemployment, and Zero Net Carbon Emissions. And that's looking at a, a framework um, to build a society, uh, which I suspect yourself as the Green team would be highly aligned to.
1: Excellent. And um, next question is, what advice would you give your younger self
2: Two things, two things, and they're quite related and similar. So it would be to have abundance over scarcity um, and have a growth mindset over a fixed mindset. And to elaborate on both of those, I think maybe, no, not maybe, 100% certain that there's been times where I have been insecure, um, whether it's about myself, about my employment opportunities, about the opportunity for me to gain and generate personal wealth and those sorts of things have actually held me back from being my best self Um, and that's because I had an abundant mindset and you can take that to relationships as well like you can sometimes think to yourself you may have had friends or partners you may have not been the best person for you but the reason why you've stayed with them is because humans experience loss aversion far greater than you know, the prospect of gain. And again, that goes back to abundance over it's like having a scarce mindset over an abundant mindset. And I think going to then the growth mindset over the fixed mindset, I think when I first started my career, I would probably been, had been raised, and this is probably an issue with our education system in a way, you just sort of be raised where, you know, you're a better person if you get the right answer and you get higher marks and you know, mistakes are punished in a way with lower grades and, and so on. And when I first entered the workforce, I probably, no, no, again, I definitely was a bit more conservative in terms of like the tasks that I chose to undertake or the projects I chose to undertake because I didn't want to fail I didn't want to make mistakes. And as a result, I missed out on really great learning opportunities when that that was probably the best time to fail and make mistakes at the start of my career because that's when it's more accepted. Um, however, sort of learning from that, yeah, you know, I then took on, you know, in different roles, harder projects, you know, things that challenged me more and, and maybe I did make mistakes and maybe I did fail um, at those times, but I can tell you, I learned a whole lot more and as a result, that's enabled and empowered me to, you know, to be a much more complete professional than I am now. So they, those would be the two things. Opt for abundance over scarcity. Opt for a growth
3: mindset over a fixed mindset. Yeah, definitely agree with those, Dean. I think like I'm quite early on in my career and definitely principles that I can follow as well. So thanks for sharing. How has Macquarie University shaped your learnings and your career?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so um, I'd love to give Macquarie the pitch. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I I guess each and every university is in the business of uh, offering education and Macquarie was great at that with both my courses. Uh, but it's what you do extracurricular-wise that really took my experience to the next level and my learnings to the next level in a way. So professionally, I had the opportunity to do multiple internships. So I had the opportunity to do a, a corporate finance advisory internship with a like boutique investment bank type-like company. Whilst at Macquarie, I had the opportunity to then do the ethical human rights supply chain internship I even had the opportunity to go overseas and do a finance internship with Restless Development in India. So I got all that practical experience beyond you know, just the degree. And whilst being overseas doing volunteering, I also had the opportunity to do a scholarship and travel to Colombia and South America and do a unit on Latin American culture as well and learn Spanish and learn how to salsa and stuff in <laughs> Colombia. is not what I was expecting from a finance degree, right? um yep. but yeah th- th- that's useful on dance floors in a way <laughs> but then beyond, be, beyond that like you know i was so fortunate in the sense that you know i went to the the sports and aquatic center and that was my gym and that's where i you know engaged with you know you know lifting and weightlifting and things like that for the first time and you know that is great for my fitness i had the opportunity to play for many years for the the football team the soccer team of macquarie university and all the student societies, like all the social events as well, like all those amazing on campus experiences and all these things not only added to like my social experience alongside the degree as well, but because we're all sort of, you know, learning, aspiring professionals, like the amount of like social circles I have have built incredible networks, you know, so broadly across. And I suspect my, it's probably how I first came across my own away. Through like those Macquarie University networks and communities, and yeah, those have proven invaluable. Like from time and again, like if there's been people I need to call on for a certain expertise, or if there's a community event that I'm looking to um, help lead and run, and I sort of can look back and think, okay, who was in what society, and who shares what set of values, and those can be strategic people that I know who are going to have buy into. You know, something that I'm trying to lead or promote. Uh, you know, those things have all yeah you know, proved invaluable in a way. And again, I've been like really fortunate to stay in touch with the university in multiple ways. Um, having also like been formally employed whilst I was working there to promote the university itself and speak to school students about opportunities and yeah be involved in coming back and speaking to like a like last no this year actually I was fortunate to. Like speak to like the advanced corporate finance class about valuations, and it was ironic because that class I spoke to was the very last class that I ever attended, for example, so there's was a nice, nice sort of yeah nice full circle in a way, um to you know go from being a student to you know teaching the students and again, sort of opportunities like this, and yeah you know, there there's a few other opportunities like you know with with the university as well, so watch this space.
1: Um, Yeah, you do have a lot of insights and I think your journey is quite special to be able to share to other students. So going back to your current work, I guess, uh, what is one emerging ESG trend that you think is changing investor behaviour?
2: I think I'll respond to this with my corporate finance hat on and say capital allocation. So there's an undoubted huge shift towards responsible investing and impact investing and so on uh in terms of capital allocation and probably the most recent stats that i can give you on this is that you know the australian impact investment space grew to 1.2 trillion oh there was not an impact investment space the responsible investment space grew to 1.2 trillion dollars um in 2020 and, and the fastest growing space within that is actually the uh, impact investment space which i'm in but that's primarily been made up of you know green social and sustainability bonds because they're so large in issuance so you know the space is growing i think the the statistic that i saw was that the responsible investment industry in australia has grown 30 times faster than the broad just australian investment management industry so that's um and that was from the RIAA as well so that's the trend that I'm seeing, uh, that's the trend that's obvious, the capital allocation, but probably the turn, um, again, the corporate finance hat on, the challenge is returns expectations and then sort of remain a challenge in the Australian market. So there's a lot of talk and commitment to ESG and wanting to drive impact. But then when it comes to, okay, like are you as an investor willing to put your capital at risk or receive a suboptimal return as a like in, in, in a trade for that, there is actually hesitancy. And I think maybe a diagnosis for that is that if you're to compare Australia to other countries, we've got, you know, countries like America where there's much greater philanthropic foundations that exist to gift and, and donate and invest far more generously into the social impact space, like impact investment space and the philanthropy space and are happy to put their capital at risk um, and not be too concerned with the returns expectations. There's a larger community for that in America. You could argue it's because maybe some of them get taxed less um, and are happy to give it away. But also like, yeah, I think all, another argument you can make is that there's a lot more Wealthy billionaires in America too, um, but that's a that's a typical trend. Whilst you know in the Australian impact investment space, particularly you know we do have you know traditional institutional type investors, whether they're you know, financial institutions or super funds, and you know the super funds in particular have the expectation um, you know to generate returns um, that are in the best interest of their their stakeholders. So. You know, there there has to be a profit lens to that. You can't sort of be destroying, you know, super fund members' capital as a result of wanting to engage in, you know, certain social impact investments which may be risky or may have a lower risk return trade-off. So, yeah, that remains a challenge in Australia, but I think as this space grows and acceptance grows, hopefully those sorts of, you know, rates of return that are expected and the cost of capital that's placed upon social impact investment declines and i think i take comfort and inspiration out of the australian venture capital space in this regard where the if i was to look at a company like blackbird for example they probably well they yeah struggled probably to find an appetite for venture capital and vc funding when they launched their 2012 fund their first fund and if you were to fast forward almost a decade on you yeah, know there's such a huge appetite to put capital in and finance in to find out what is the next, you know, Canva and Australian startup space, for example. So hopefully we have the same sort of the outcome 10 years from
3: now for the social impact investment space. Yeah, definitely. Um, a very exciting time for the social impact space and looking to see the impact you baked in. And then lastly, where can um, listeners go on to learn more about you and your organization?
2: We do have a website for the Office of Social Impact Investment. Um, so it is, uh, just consulted Google now, it is <laughs> www.ossi, which is so is www.osii.newsouthwales.gov.au. We also have a Twitter um, for New South Wales Office of Social Impact Investment. You can also, like, on the OSI website, which I first mentioned, we have a newsletter which you can follow and stay up to date with what we do. Uh, and I think other great ways to stay in touch with what we are achieving broadly with our um, New South Wales Treasury team, in particular, is to give to give our Treasury New South Wales Treasury page a follow on LinkedIn. Um, Aussie or the Office of Social Impact Investment has had a few of our investments featured on that, which is great. Not directly associated with this, but also T Corp has a great LinkedIn page, and they do talk quite a lot about, particularly recently, with COP26 a lot around like a lot of ESG investment-related themes. Um, And there's some really great thought leaders in that space in the context of asset and investment management. And then just lastly as well, if you'd like to find me on on LinkedIn, you're more than welcome to connect. So my name is Dean Rad. It's spelled D-E-E-N, different to the traditional spelling. Last name is Rad, R-A-D. And um, I think the great thing about having a non-traditional spelling is uh, I'm the only one on LinkedIn (laughs) and, and Facebook and all those other platforms. So
3: also, awesome. and we'll be sure to put other links to those organizations on our show notes so our listeners can easily um, click on the link and have a look amazing. at all the amazing stuff that's being done. So Dean, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on board. I think Maya and I really got definitely a good understanding of what you do in the social impact space, how this space is changing, and also like your own journey, which I think has been really interesting, how you went through to, went through this experience in uni, having always had, that social justice sort of sense and then sort of pivoting that into a career, which I'm sure you're really enjoying at this point. And throughout that, having those experiences at Macquarie and PwC. So I think like this is definitely something that all listeners will find very engaging because our audience is made out of quite a few of them are in university or have just started their corporate careers or startup careers. So definitely a lot of great things to learn. And thank you so much for being on the GreenFluence podcast and we'll definitely keep in touch.
2: Sounds good. Looking forward to watching this space and seeing what you guys continue to achieve.
0: What did you think of part two with Dean? I am fascinated to learn about the processes and questions that go into investment projects at the New South Wales Treasury. I'm encouraged to hear that a significant amount of thought into the social and environmental impacts that are made we'd love to hear your thoughts so please connect with us on facebook linkedin and subscribe to our podcast to keep up to date with the latest episodes we'd appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a comment it means a lot and we love hearing from you well that's a wrap on season one we'll catch you in the next episode the very first episode of season two where you'll get to meet the people behind greenfluence Music.